Good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who are new with us, my name is Abby. I'm one of the leaders here, and I'd love to connect with you after the service at our guest service uh, table out in the lobby. We have a gift for you guys for being here. Uh, we have some fun announcements today, starting with it is the week we are spinning the wheel for going out to lunch. You're not going out to lunch today. I mean, you can go on your own, but next week we'll be going as a church. So if you want to get to know some of the people here a little bit better, um, we would love to have you join us. My husband and myself will be there, um, so it should be fun. Uh, so we're going to spin the wheel. We've got some different restaurants on here, and wherever it lands is where we will be going next week. So those of you who are planners can plan ahead. Um, so is everybody ready? Yeah. Let's go. Here we go. <laughs> and we'll be going to Panera next week. So plan accordingly. Awesome. All right, a few other announcements for us this morning. Um, one of the things we're doing as a church this year is encouraging everyone to memorize scripture together. Um, so there is a verse plan online, and there's also little uh, note card packets at the door that you are welcome to take if you want to use that to write out the verses each week that we're trying to memorize. Um, so feel free to utilize that tool. We'd love for you to join along with us in that. And then um, as we go into the tithes and offering portion of our service, um, I want to remind you guys it is our mission Sunday, the last Sunday of the month. We like to um, give an extra tithe to um, one of our missions partners, Destiny Rescue, is what we're focusing on this year. And that's an agency that helps rescue women um, and children and from the sex trafficking industry and not just rescue them, but also help restore them. Um, teach them new skills and um, teach them about Christ and give them hope in a future. Uh, so it's a really cool ministry. So far as a church, we've already rescued at least two children um, out of the sex trafficking industry. We are working on our third. Um, and you may have received a bracelet when you came in. If you did not, they are on the back table by the door. Um, and so when you leave, you can grab one. These were actually made by um, some of the people who were rescued. Um, so this is just a token to you can wear it, hang it up, whatever, just to reminder to be praying for these um, kids and women that are getting rescued and for the people that are helping them um, and just the importance behind that mission we're really glad to be a part of it as a church it's just such a cool thing so um, if you want to give to the church there's two ways you can do so you can give online or you can give um, at rethinkchurch.cc or you can give in the back there's the black box by the door if you want to give specifically to our mission sunday um, there's little envelopes that have missions on it or there's a missions tab online so um, thank you guys for doing that and we hope you enjoy the rest of the service
Uh, we talked about this when we were in Matthew that these words are not supposed to be words. We're supposed to put them into action. And that's how we know we're a follower of Jesus. We're actually putting this into practice. My name is Mark, by the way. I don't think I asked at that point. But, um, hey, nice to meet you. So, uh, but today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to go through we've gone through these journeys. Now, let me just give you a heads up. I don't ever do, like, I hardly ever do this. I don't know where I'm going to land today. You're like, you could be drinking from fire hose. You could be like, dude, shut up. Like, we're going to get there, though, okay? So, um, usually I have a nice little bow on these sermons, and I don't today. This is one of those days. Uh, one of those passages, and I'll explain it getting into it about here in a little bit. Um, but you're going to get to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll get there eventually. Uh, hopefully before the end of service. So, um, but leading up to this, when I grew up, my mom just made us go to church. It was basically like built into child care. Does that make sense? Like four, four of us against one of her, and she needed help. So, um, when I was in sixth, when I was in like fifth grade, I got an award. I don't think it was an award. I think it was more of like a statement that I had made more Sunday school teachers quit Sunday school, which I thought was like an award. My mom told me it was not an award. Um, but I was like, hey, I'm going to take that probably, right? When I got into sixth grade, one of my punishments was I had to join this thing called the Bible Bowl quiz team. I don't know if you guys have known this. It's like a very strange, small subculture, subculture, subculture of church world. And my mom just made me do it. Uh, think academic Super Bowl, the Bible, and other things had babies together, and all of a sudden now you have this Bible Bowl Super Bowl thing. So uh, there's like little, like actual competitions and stuff like that. Um, we would take like, like we, I, my team, when we did the first annual, won the state competition, which I'm sorry, there's probably like 10 of us total in the entire state of Indiana growing up. But, um, but it, like, I would be like, this. And so we like, it took an entire year to study the Bible. This is before I was a Christian. Um, so I would study the Bible. We'd study these passages. We were First Samuel one year, second or sorry, First Chronicles, or First Corinthians one year, and then back in Judges for the third year. After my eighth grade year, I just quit because I was like, "This is weird. You're forcing me to read the Bible. I don't like the Bible. I don't believe in Jesus yet. Like I knew he was there because like it was that. But basically, it was like for my mom, it was like, "Hey, you're going to be. It's like a built-in babysitter for at least an hour a week. I know you're not going to be." doing something illegal, or you shouldn't at least. And if you do, then we have a conversation with the pastor and the people who are supposedly watching me. Uh, so, but like, we would study things, and we would study like connected t uh, text and stuff like that. So when we were in 1 Samuel, we were in parts of 2 Samuel, we would read 1 Corinthians and study 2 Kings, 1 Kings, and all that, because those books are so closely connected and stuff like that. Um, and so we would read them because they would quiz you on the stupidest things of like, in verse or chapter 15, verse 4, what's the second word? I don't know, based on your translation, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, but it would, like those kind of things. Um, and so you had to know all this other stuff. And so, but the great thing about this is, as I started reading, this was like me learning about the Bible beyond Sunday school class stories. Does that make sense? Like in our second year, second grade year, the same stories got taught in our fourth and third grade years. We just kept repeating Sunday school teachers, like lessons, for whatever reason. I think they thought we'd forget but we didn't. And so by like the second round, that's when I got bored and started just testing every single teacher. You know what I mean? Like, and then they eventually quit. Um, so one guy told me I was number one when I was his teacher. I was like, hey, I don't think you're supposed to use that symbol in church, but he did. So, um, 
that was, yeah. So anyway, I'm starting reading all these passages, and when I get to 1 Corinthians, uh, I get to this passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's giving instructions for prophet, like female prophets, and how they're supposed to prophesy as a female in church. But then you get to verse 14, I'm sorry, chapter 14, and Paul has a statement where he says, women be silent in the church. And that didn't sit well with me. I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? When I was in uh, studying in 1 Samuel, when we were studying Judges and stuff like that, I read uh, in sorry, the Second Kings, and there's a prophetess named Huldah who lives in Jerusalem. And I'm like, wait a minute, she's like, she's speaking in church too. Like, it's not necessarily church like we would think, but she's still being used as a prophet or a prophetess. And so I was like, that's weird. Uh, when I got into Judges, we started studying Deborah, who is a female prophet, or sorry, female judge, who led the entire nation, and led them pretty effectively. And so I remember sitting down, and we, I was talking with the, the coaches, whatever you want to call them, the, the adults of this group, and I was like, so wait a minute, if a female prophet, like in order to prophesy, you have to use your mouth, right? Like you're verbalizing whatever's inside of you, Right? And if you're a judge, you're giving instructions, you're leading, probably more in detail than just giving a sermon, if you're leading an entire nation. I'm going to guess, you know, I've never led a nation, but I'm assuming that that's more detailed. So how can Paul tell females to be quiet in church? And he didn't have an answer for it. So that made me literally walk away from, like, I almost became an agnostic because I was reading the Bible. Does that make sense? Because my conclusion was that the Bible's contradict, like, like, whatever, the word, there you go, contradicting itself, and I can't wrap my mind around that. If I'm, like, not, like I don't know if you guys have ever been told, hey, you're a Christian now, read your Bible. Or if you want to be a Christian, read your Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So I started reading the Bible on my own, and I literally almost walked away from God and faith, because I was reading my Bible. Especially when you get into weird parts of the Bible, and like, <clears throat> now I can, I can justify, like, a, not justify, I can explain it away, or like, kind of come to the conclusion of what the reasoning behind all some of those weird passages are, and we'll get into those later. Um, but when I got to this point of, like, reading through some of these things, I, like, I had to wrestle through some stuff. Like, should I really believe in God, who is, it seemingly demeans women, encourages slavery, and all this, like this, like I had to wrestle through that. <clears throat> so when I was in eighth grade, that's when I quit and I told my mom, like, you're like, she's like this tall, by the way. So I was like, you're not gonna make me physically make me do anything, mom. Like, I'm just not gonna go. And she was like, please don't get arrested. That was our deal. I quit Bible and I didn't get arrested. It was like, cool, right? <laughs> when I got arrested, I had to go back to Bible, I'm pretty sure. But I didn't get arrested, so we're good. So my freshman year, sophomore year go on, junior year go on, and still going to church, but just simply going there just to sit and appease my mom. Does that make sense? Like, doing things I shouldn't be doing, but not getting arrested, because that was our deal. And so, doing all this other stuff, my junior year, I became a Christian, and things started changing. Last week I told you, I was like, literally in a fist fight with a guy with a Burger King tray, and punched him in the face, and goes, I don't think I can tell him I love Jesus, or Jesus loves him as I'm punching him. And that literally changed the way I reacted to certain people. And so things started changing in my life, and my friends started noticing it. And so what didn't change was my after-school routine, which is to walk to a gas station, get fried mushrooms, and a giant thing of Mountain Dew for a dollar or five, right? So that, like my friends and I, we just do this. And so we go hang and hang out, hang out with their friends, 
Uh, it was in May of my junior year, and this guy named John, he's a good friend of mine, his sister Heather and I, we all just hung out in this underground punk culture of Plymouth, Indiana. Um, and so we were walking around, and John would question me all the time, like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? And I was like, look to follow Jesus now. I'm a Christian. And he like, it bugged him. It like, literally bothered him. And so he started asking me questions about, can you really follow Jesus, read the Bible, and, and he like, demean women, all this other stuff. And so we're talking one day, and I show up in this house, and this house that we grew up at, like, they were part of a band called Dirge. Um, and Seth was older, uh, the, like, the older guy of this group. He's, like, 20. Sounds weird that a 20-year-old's hanging out with high schoolers. That should have been a red flag, but it wasn't in my mind. But now that I say it out loud, I'm like, hmm, that's strange. So we walk in, and... Seth is in his house and it's like this living room and there's like everybody's strategically sitting there's one chair off to the side that I'm supposed to sit at and then like when I walk in you know like when you walk in people just talk and they keep the conversation keeps going yes. when I walked in this the conversation stopped and they all turned to me and John walked me over to the chair I was like what you want me out of here like what the heck and they're like Mark we're really concerned with your with your decision to follow Jesus and Seth started out, he had this old King James Bible, and he opened it up, and he opened it up to Isaiah 34, uh, verse 7, and here's what it says. Judy, you want to put this one up. He read this passage to me, and I didn't know anything about it. But Isaiah 34, 7, here's what it says. Um, let's see if I can get to it, sorry. Is it up there? Yeah. He says, and the unicorns shall, you know, whatever. And that part right there is where we stopped. And Seth closed his Bible and he said, you're joined a cult that believes in unicorns and rainbows. And like, they, for an hour, questioned me about everything that I just made the decision to. Because they started reading their Bible, they read a King James Version, and I didn't know context, I didn't know culture, but my friends were, I mean, ridiculously concerned that I joined a cult that believed in unicorns. And I thought it was funny, I started laughing at them, but they were like, no, seriously, Mark. Like, we're really concerned. Like, you're changing your life, and you're believing Jesus. And, and they, like, their main thing, John was very concerned because of the way that women were treated in church. And his mom had some major baggage with that. And my mom had some major baggage that came with that. Uh, because women in church traditions were demeaned. Thought less than. I never, didn't dawn on me until I was in eighth grade, where every person who got up and spoke at our church was a man. Women could sing, and at times, if we were really desperate to do something in our church, women could pray. But that's about it. And they could go teach children off in the kids' area. My mom was a Sunday school teacher for 40 years, but that's all that she could really do. And it, like, it dawned on me when I was asking those questions with the Bible pool team, like, hey, can you explain to me, like, we, we say we believe in equal, like, egalitarian and stuff like that, but like, what we're practicing doesn't. And it just it bothered me as a, as a teenager. And it bothered John. So, but I just like, I don't know. I just know that God loves me. Jesus loves me. And I just want to give my life to him. And he's like, why would you give your life to that? Like, it's a made-up cult that believes in unicorns and rainbows. And encourages people. Like, if you look at Exodus, there's weird passages about, like, selling slaves and how to do all this and all that. And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know the answers. And he's like, you're just going to jump right in? And I was like, I guess so. So I don't know about you, but for me, like, sometimes you could read the Bible... And what it, what it forced me to do was all these questions and that weird intervention about, like, you're joining a cult-type intervention forced me 
to start looking through, through things, but like to wrestle down my answers. Have you ever had to ask yourself, why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you actually follow Jesus? Why are you showing up on a Sunday morning at 10.30 when you could be sleeping or whatever, right? <clears throat> why do you read your Bible? And what it forced me to do was realize I should not read the Bible on my own. That I needed community around me to help me with that. That I needed uh, a mentor, somebody older, further down the road. And I found this guy named Ed. Ed was a, a bodybuilder, not a bodybuilder, more like strongman competition. So we would live together, and then we would read the passages of the Bible together. Um, and then he would just talk to me. And he had about, there's about four or five guys that we would read through the scriptures through together. And whenever we had a question, we got to this weird part, we would ask him. And Ed was just a normal guy, he was a pastor, and he would give me his advice. And if he didn't know, he just didn't make an answer up. Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes pastors try to like make themselves look smarter than they are, so they make crap up. Probably no one you know, but you know what I mean? Like, but then like Ed would just be like, I don't know. And I was like, okay, cool. But then we would find the question out together. You know what I mean? Like we'd dig into it and stuff like that. And so for us, like, like for me, what I started realizing, at the age of 17, I needed to like dive into my deep, like deep mode of like why I wanted, why I truly believe this. It was the only friend in my friend group that did that, and I had to change who I hung out with during that point. Um, but then I started realizing like, oh. And what Ed taught me, one of the very first things that Ed taught me was that the Bible's not a book. The Bible's a library. And we don't read parts of the library or books in the library the same way we would like do this. So when you go and read a historical book, you're not thinking poetry or law and stuff like that. But if you don't think of a law book and think, oh, this is where I'm going to get motivated, inspired, and poets. You're like, this doesn't happen. But like, that's what we have to do. And we read books from page one all the way through, right? So Ed taught us how to read the Bible and stuff like that. Uh, and this passage, this is the passage, chapter five, is one of those passages that really hung up with me. And it still kind of does. I was gonna be honest with you, there's part of the Bible, parts of the Bible that I get like hung up on. And when you get to the end of chapter five, it's a it's a it's a controversial chapter, to be honest with you. We're not into that end part of it though, but I started realizing certain things. That uh, you should not read the Bible in isolation. For thousands of years, people did not have the Bible. For thousands of years, communities had the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so you would show up and you would read through them, like a communal space, like a synagogue or an office space, or maybe somebody who's really, really wealthy would have parts of the Bible or scrolls of the Bible, and they'd read it. And imagine this, you read it out loud. Now, we have it really reversed. When I sat, when I was in Israel, and we went to the synagogue, there was a seating place where the scripture would be read for 55 minutes or so. They would just read the scriptures. And then the pastor, the synagogue leader, would give like a five-minute like clip, right? Let's go back to that. We're just going to read the scriptures for an hour. I'm just kidding. But like, I know, right? Like, but Old Testament, and here's the beautiful part about this. Like, older people had the seats of honor. When, like, people with the kids and stuff like that would be like on the floor. But if you had questions, you would ask the people around you. Like, hey, what did he just say? Did he really say that? Like, is that really what the Bible says? And so the synagogue leader would pause and they would talk about it. And then they would have a discussion about it. And they'd go back to reading it. Does that make sense? Like, so you were never left in isolation. You're never left going, I don't know what that means, and that's weird, right? Are there really unicorns in the Bible? Like, which by the way, that whole, I'll just give you a quick explanation of it. Uh, it's from the Septuagint, they got translated into, uh, from Hebrew to Greek, and then Greek into Latin. And they didn't have this, the word for it in Hebrew, but it's the horned, the one horned animal, which we now know is probably a rhino or the wild ox. 
Not anymore. You're like, dang. You know what I mean? Like, sorry, trust your bubble. Like, burst your bubble. There's not unicorns that I know of in the Bible yet. These probably didn't show up on, at Noah's Ark. Anyway. Um, but there are means of, like, man, I thought you said four o'clock on Noah's Ark time. So, anyway. Um, but there's this whole process that you have to work through, and, you, and what you can come up with, those controversial issues, do not read these in isolation. So I want to encourage you. Do not read this and say, I just don't know, so it has to be the wrong answer, right? When we read it in isolation, what we actually end up doing is putting our uh, context and our culture into the implication saying this is, this has to mean what it means. And that's ne not necessarily the biblical author's like intent, okay? So chapter 5 is one of the most controversial things to me, and it's still a, a part that just like has some tinge to it, if you will. Uh, but we've addressed this several times in our church, in our young church life, but very early on we had a series called the Confessions of a Sinful Church. Um, you can find that on our website. We've addressed this issue, like how women have been treated in the church. Um, and then again, we've done it in several, a couple other ones where new rules for sex, love, and dating is one of them. Those are all on the website. If you want to like, let's go dive deep into this passage. Yeah, we can do that there, or you can do that there. Um, and so we're in the middle of Paul's walking passage. So if you've gone with us for the next few weeks, if you're starting uh, chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to 5, verse 18, Paul has this theme that he's been going through, and it's this idea that we should walk, and we should walk certain ways. And so if you look at uh, 4, verse 1, it says that we should walk worthy. 17, we should walk wisely. And 5, verse 2, we should walk in love. 5, verse 8, we should walk as children of light. 5, 15, we should walk wisely. And that's how people who follow Jesus should actually walk. So, before we read 5, verse 2, verse 1 and 2, uh, let's just get some background. Paul is a Jewish rabbi. He's living in a Greco-Roman world. And Greco-Roman meaning that Roman was the government, the culture was more Greco. But the fun part is that the Romans were trying to transform the culture. The Romans were literally trying to like push out the Greco influence. This is why the pantheon, the gods, get changed names. And stuff like that, and they're just trying to get into that whole process to change it. Paul's purpose, he didn't have an office, he didn't have like this amazing tower of anything. He just would travel around. He was a tent maker, which what meant that he would like meant leather tents for like like canvas type tents, but then also prayer shawls. So he was like like really rugged type guy, but then I also had to be very delicate with the Jewish prayer shawls because it was a very fine type material. So he has this way of doing things. He has a business that he can run. He doesn't have to rely on the people to like provide for him. He's like, you don't want to pay me. I'll just go sell tents and feed myself. You know what I mean? Like, and the companion around him. And so he had apprentices with him because he was teaching him all this skill set and all that. But he's, he is saturated the Jewish mindset, the, the culture. So, which speaks Hebrew, right? So not everybody in the Roman Empire would speak Hebrew. So he learned Greek and all these other languages. But when he says the word love... Think about this word love in English. We use it to describe everything. Like, I love pizza, and I love my wife. Hopefully not the same. Right? And if you love your food the same level that you love your spouse or any other human, evaluate your decisions in life. Right? Like, it should not be an equal. But we use it equally, don't we? So, here's... Here's Paul, who's saturated in the Jewish mindset, who speaks Hebrew, has Hebrew words for love, and there's several, but now he's trying to get 
Jewish and pe Jewish people and Greek and Roman people to understand what, how to follow Jesus. So imagine he has this tent space, and the way that he would actually like he didn't have the church services as much as he did just talk to people. And so imagine they would come up to him, and he's trying to communicate how how Jesus loves them. And so for a Jewish person, he's going to use Hebrew scriptures and all this other stuff, you know, the fulfillment of the law. And but for a Greek person or a Roman person or a barbarian, he's going to somehow connect it to some other way. But it's still the same concept. Does that make sense? And then when those two worlds come together, if those three worlds come together, now he has to figure out how to do it and all simultaneously. Our worlds are starting to get like this. Have you noticed this? You're, you're, you and I are interacting with different cultures more and more than we ever thought about. Unless you live in a bubble, and that's weird. You shouldn't do that. So, um, come out and see the sunlight, right? Every once in a while. But you, your, your worlds are starting to get smaller and smaller. Um, it was eye-opening to me when I worked at Denzo, um, like Pearl Harbor Day at a Japanese-owned company was strange. Like, I had an old retired Air Force major who was my boss, was like, had like American flags and World War II stuff, next to a guy who his grandfather was, fought for Jap Japan, the Japanese Empire, and all of a sudden they had to learn how to work together. Odd moments, right? But now our worlds are starting to become like this over and over again. And so here's Paul navigating all these things. And so in the Hebrew mindset, we're going to dive into the Hebrew mindset, a couple words of love today. Uh, the word, first one is going to be ahava. Ahava is one of the main ways that would speak, a Hebrew, Hebrew would talk about love. Ahava is this emotion, but it's not just an emotion. It also drives you to do something. So, uh, Paul, or not Paul, but God would have this ahava, and the way that it's described is that Abraham has, ah, has ahavad Isaac. Hebrew is a word of verb-based language, and so it's not just like oh, these thoughts or these emotions. It's like there's some action to it. So as a, as a, as a dad would love his son, he provides for his son. He, he takes care of his son. He's, he's out there helping his son. And the Israelites... Ahavad David as their king, and so they served him, right? And they fought for him. And so <clears throat> there's other political alliances that talk about Ahavad. So the king of Tyre, uh, King Haram, Ahavad King David. And so he, as a result, he made a, a treaty with David's son Solomon. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, I liked your dad. But there's some action to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so God Ahavad's people, and so he created us in his image. He wasn't lonely, he just loves us and he wants to be with us. And so uh, he also ahava the Israelites when they were in captive in Egypt. But he doesn't leave them and be like, I love you, peace out. You know what I mean? Like, what does God do in, in Israel's story? He rescues them, he delivers them. So ahava is something that he is, but it's also something that he does. Love is something that you are, but it's also something that you do. Does that make sense? There's an action to it. It's not just like good thoughts. Mm, made a heart go pitter patter today, and I'm going to do zero with it. We would never do that leaving church, though. I'm sure we would never do that. Like, right? We would actually put some action to it. The firm foundation, going back to the uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you are a wise person, you're going to put these words into action. You're not just going to be like, oh, that's great, it's awesome, right? Um, so all of that to say, this is part of who He is, uh, and we are made in God's image. And so we are supposed to actually reflect that. We're actually supposed to represent him when he does this. 
Jeremiah, the prophet, tells us that God's love, his ahava, is everlasting. It just simply is. There's no end. There's no start to it. So now, now how do we actually grow in this? And this is where Deuteronomy and the, and the Torah gets put into place. Uh, Deuteronomy is um, part of the Torah. One of the ways you can translate Torah is the way. Uh, so Israelite people would look at it as like, this is the way I should live life. Um, and stuff like that. It's, we'll get into there later. So Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 gives us an idea how to grow our love for God and for others. Here's what it says. Israel, uh, and now Israel, what does the Lord ask of you? Except to fear the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways, to love him, to worship him, and to uh, love your God with all your heart, soul, and your strength. To serve, and maybe your translation says, keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes. I'm giving you today for your own good. So, Judah's going to put that, there we go. Uh, so this is how we can actually increase our love for God. It's this form, like this little pattern, if you will. So, the more we do this, the more love we could have capacity for. Does that make sense? The more we worship, the more we fear. And fear is more like honor and, and respect and glorify. Like, there should be a healthy fear of authority. Does that make sense? And, and we talk about this. Like, uh, next week I'm going to show you a couple movie clips. And I can't wait because it's kind of funny how just we, we can pick and choose. Um, we can pick and choose what music we want to put into it. And sometimes we have soundtracks that say, Oh, God's all love, right? But we can take the same put, same clips, put some different music to it, and be like, oh, that's scary. And sometimes we do this with God, don't we? Same person, same character, same image, but the soundtracks around it can tell a completely different story. And so, when it comes to fear, you should have a healthy fear of God. But should we be afraid of God? That's a whole different story. We'll get into that next week, so there's a little teaser for you. So, uh, endless, we have worship God, fear God, serve God, and then walk with God, right? And as we do this, and we do this well, the growth, the aha bottle that we have can increase. If we don't, then the love that we have won't increase. But if we can learn how to walk, worship, fear, and, and serve God, then all of a sudden those things start to grow in our lives. And this is what God wants us to do. It's not just about having the right ideas, the thoughts, and all that. And the Israelites were instructed to imitate God in this. And here's what it says later on in this chapter. So this, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows. He loves the foreigners who are residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And we are to love those who are foreigners uh, because you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. Now, when it comes to the Hebrew scriptures, because we're not Jewish people and this wasn't written to us, it's written for us. We have to ask ourselves, what should we do with this? Is this a command or this instructions that we should actually follow? Is this something that we like help us love God and love others? Yeah, right? The ones that talk about, like, washing your bowls and stuff like that, probably not necessarily meaning for you, right? Like, you can read parts of that and be like, nah, I don't know about that stuff. But this one in particular, does this help us love our neighbor and love God? So the question is, how well are we doing this? Is it enough to have feelings for people who are widows, orphans, and refugees among us? Or are we actually watching over them? Are we actually helping them out? Are we providing for them? Are we loving them the way that God would love us, right? Or instruct us to. That's part of what we have to do. So here's Paul. Imagine this is part of his idea of love. And now he's trying to get the Ephesians who live in a Greco-Roman world who worship through sex of other gods and goddesses. So they would hire prostitutes and stuff like that. And now God is, God, Paul is trying to get God's love communicated to them. 
He's trying to, to say, you need to go out and do this, right? And so uh, he's writing to the saints. He's not writing to just Jewish people. And so with that in mind, now let's get to Ephesians chapter 5. I told you we get there eventually. I just had to, like, set this up. So um, why in the world would we just read the scriptures when we do all this and then read scriptures? Anyway, just kidding. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us in sacrifice and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and impurity or greed should not be even heard among you. It is proper for the saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For now, so for no, just recognize this, every sexual, immoral, impure, or greedy person who is also an, an idolater um, who does not have an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ or God. Somehow this gets left out when, like, when the pastors get up and say, women be silent in the church, or calling out women pastors. They typically don't bring this part up. If you're greedy, sexually immoral, sexually impure, you're an idolater. Somehow they just skip right over this, right? So um, I remember reading this, and one of the questions that my uh, that group of high school, my senior year in high school, were reading through this, and one of the questions was like, Ed would just ask, "How well are you imitating God?" And this question stuck with me. So I'm going to ask you, "How well are you imitating God?" It's not a suggestion. Paul's saying, "Therefore, go out and do this." Right? You have a new identity. We talked about that early on. We have a new calling. And as a new identity with a new calling, now we walk in particular ways. And are we walking in such a way that imitates God? Are we walking in such a way that imitates more of our culture? Of your own desires? Whose name is more important, yours or God's? Whose reputation is more important when it comes to your lifestyle, yours or God's? And this, this is, this is a, a part that just kind of drives us that we should be the kind of people who imitate God, who go after and pursue the ahava. It's not just enough to have good feelings, but we're going to put some action to it. This God loved, he ahava the world so much that he sent his son. It wasn't just like, hey, I love you guys, but we figured it out. But he actually pursued it and helped us out, and he sent Jesus to us. Um, Michelangelo is creating an Adam. Don't worry, there's a sensor block on this one. So it's all there. But, uh, yeah. So this is a picture who accurately, in my opinion, accurately de like depicts this pursuit of God. Like, like when we talk about at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates a space where heaven and earth, and like God's space and humanity kind of overlap. But because of God's, sorry, because of our sin against God's ways, human space moves away from God's space. But God doesn't leave us there. God pursues, and if you notice God's intention, like, by the way, God is the one without the sensor block. God is pursuing humanity. He is straining to get to back to our space. But look at the, like, attitude that Adam has. Is Adam straining? Or is he like, hmm, whatever, God. You know what I mean? Maybe he's embarrassed, and that's why he needs the sensor block. But anyway, so he's just kind of like, whatever, I'm here, right? And this is... This is the pursuit of God, like he's doing this. The second word that, uh, the Hebrew word that Paul would probably think to about love is hesed. Hesed is this love, it's this word of love that it's enduring. 
It's like a pursuit. It's not something of like to earn something. I'm not going to do this to, earn, to get something, right? It's just simply like hesed is like it's a part of your character. So in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a story of Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Naomi's the mother-in-law. Ruth is the, is the daughter. And there's a tragic thing that happens where like both sons are dead. Now the husband of death and Naomi is dead. And Ruth and Naomi have to you know, travel back. But Naomi says, hey, Ruth, just go back to your own people, back to Moab. Like, just hang out with them. And Ruth is like, no way, I'm connected to you. And so when she shows back up to the Israelite village, they watch how Ruth and Naomi interact with each other and how Ruth provides for Naomi. And they said, this, this is an act of hesed. This is a loving act of your enduring these hardships because of her, to help her provide and stuff like that. Like, you're not going to gain anything out of this. It would have been easier for you to go back to your own people. But they, she didn't. She stuck with them. Um, another one is there's a couple prophets that have ideas and stories about Hesed. Um, I think Jesus is probably the best example of Hesed. Uh, think about, like, he, he pulls his disciples together. And he demonstrates and models for them and all this. And in this moment where he needs them the most, they're constantly asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes back and is like, can you just pray with me? Can you watch with me for a while? And Peter's completely asleep. He's like, I'm really sorry, God. I'm like, you know what I mean? Imagine falling asleep when Jesus went on an assignment for him. Like when he gives you an assignment, and you're like, I'm really sorry. Right? But Jesus keeps coming back. So then later on, Peter betrays Jesus, denies that he even knows Jesus. And so when he shows up, uh, Jesus lovingly accepts Peter. This is Hesed. This is enduring love uh, that pursues and just keeps going after, not because they can gain anything better out of it, but because that's who he is. Let me ask you this. Is there anyone in your life that you can model that? Is there anyone in your life that you serve that, like you serving them would actually cost you? A lot. A lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of money. When I talk about character with my students, one of the ways I've defined character for people is when you serve people that would actually hurt you. Like it's gonna cost you something when no one's watching you. There's no Instagram people, there's no paparazzi following you. You're just simply doing it. Because you want to reflect and imitate and, and like God's love for them. So the question is, who is that in your life? I told you I didn't know how I was going to land it, but here's the deal. What I've constantly come back to is that Jesus, he opvaz us and he, he has hesed for us. He pursues us over and over and over again. And just because you sinned doesn't mean he's done with you. Right? And just because you don't, you're not perfect doesn't mean he's not done with you. He's going to write a story in and through your life that is going to be beautiful. The question is, will you just model that and walk with him? And eventually, it'll come second nature for you to imitate him. It'll come second nature for you to look at the things of this world and be like, it's not worth it. And it'll change everything about your life. Um, and if you've not followed Jesus, made that decision, followed Jesus, I would encourage you to do it because he constantly does it for us. If you've made that decision, you've screwed it up, just come back to him. He's a loving guy. He's like, yep, this is my character. This is who I am. This is also what I do. And the way that we do that, we admit our sins, we believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and we commit our lives to him. That doesn't mean we know everything about it or have all the right answers, but we can just simply do it. So let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are.
Jesus thinks that you love us. That it's not just an emotion, but God, it's an emotion that drives us to, to some kind of action. And that your hesed, your, your, um, your enduring, faithful love that's loyal is not because you would benefit, but God, we would benefit from it. And so, Jesus, I pray that this would be the way that we approach chapter 5 of Ephesians. And that this is the way we would approach this week. That we would recognize your love for us and that we would model it for others around us. And God, for those of us who are sitting here and are exploring faith, who are just kind of feeling this whole thing out, would you show up in a real way for them today? Would they take time to admit their sins to you? To believe that you are who the Bible says you are? And they would commit your lives to them, or their, your life, your, their life to you. And we're going to give you all the glory and the honor. And God, we just want to rest in your love for us. We love you, Jesus. Continue to pray this. Amen. Well, church, if you need any prayer for anything, we'd love to meet with you in the back. Love to hear you all. And I hope you know this to be true that God loves you and that I love you. And as we follow him, we count the best he has to offer for us. So let's go and be at the church. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.